0: .NET Rocks episode 728 with guest Corey Haynes. Recorded live Friday, December 16th, 2011. This episode is brought to you by Telerik and by Franklin's.NET, training developers to work smarter and now offering video training on Silverlight 4 with Billy Hollis and SharePoint 2010 with Sahil Malik. Order online now at
1: franklins.net. And now here are Carl and Richard. Thank you very much, and welcome back to .NET Rocks. It's Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell here. What's up, man?
0: You know what? I got nothing to complain about, and nobody's listening anyway. Yeah. Oh, wait, wait. We're on .NET Rocks. Lots of people are listening. What am I thinking?
1: That's your other show. Oh, jeez. <laughs> oh, <Ooh. laughs>
0: oh, not a nice man. Oh, <laughs> uh,
1: yeah, yeah. Thanks for uh, that. You know,
0: I know where you sleep. Yeah, I'm oh, sorry.
1: That's <laughs> not actually not true at all. Run yeah, As Radio true. is a very popular IT show. Yeah, and it's doing. You're just doing great stuff over there. Thanks. We've been having a
0: good time doing it. Well, I've been doing a lot of them solo. Uh, you know, Greg's been buried in projects, but that's fine. You know, yeah, that's you know, fine. It's, I've been doing a lot of on-site stuff, going to events, and just talking to people because there's all so many moving parts right now. In the world of, uh, of IT too. You know, for developers, you don't know, but we're, we're going nuts too. There was a new version of Windows Server that came out at build as well. It's just nobody knows about
1: it. Yeah, I know. It's great stuff. And, and I always learn a lot listening to you talk about anything. So. <laughs> what were you
0: upset about the other day? Oh, when, uh, somebody said, misquoted the name of a, an aircraft and went, oh, no, no, it's this.
1: Yeah. And they were in the Air Force. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And then he went, oh yeah, you're right. <laughs> yes, I know I'm right.
1: Well, anyway, uh, it's time to announce the winner of the Telerik Ultimate Collection for this show. Woohoo! And if you don't know what we're talking about, we recently started a .NET Rocks fan club, the sole purpose of which is to give away stuff yes. every show. Telerik was the first to jump on board and said, we're going to give away an Ultimate Collection. That's a $2,000 package every show. So what we want you to do is go to dot slash fanpage.aspx. Fill out a little form, and then you're a fan, and we pick from that list uh, every show.
0: Every show. And it's it's on the homepage, so if you go to Donna Rocks, just click on that fan page link, and you're good.
1: And every December, starting next December, we're going to give away a big prize, and I'm talking at least five grand worth of stuff. Uh, and you just got an idea, didn't you? I did get an idea. I'll talk about that in Better Know a Framework, which oh. is coming right up after I announce the winner, Oh, who yes. is Paul Manser. From Victoria, Australia. Nice. Paul, congratulations. You're swimming in Telerik goodness right now. Here comes the Telerik love. Yeah. All right. Better know framework. (laughs) All right. What do you got? All right. So, you know, I just love spelunking around. And and every once in a while, I come across something I knew was there, but I just hadn't really looked at it, you know? So, the Microsoft Surface 2.0 SDK caught my eye today. There's a new version of Surface called Surface Two O. And there's actually some great hardware around Surface Two O. Mm-hmm. If you look at um well, first of all, the SDK is at tinyurl.com slash surface SDK. But there's a YouTube video at tinyurl.com slash surface two video. That's number two, surface two video uh from Microsoft. It it just kinda shows off the new Samsung S U R forty uh which will be shipping this year and a retail costs around eight grand. They're taking pre-orders right now. But the Surface SDK works on any.NET machine. You don't have to build it on a Surface. Here's what it says right in the docs. The Microsoft Surface 2.0 SDK provides the managed APIs and the tools you need to develop Surface apps. Applications that are built using the Surface SDK can run on devices made for Surface 2.0 and on Windows 7 computers. Developing applications for Surface is essentially the same as developing for WPF or XNA, except that the SDK provides extended support for the special features of the Surface environment, like 50 simultaneous touch points. Yeah. Finger and blob recognition. Finger recognition. Yes. It not only can track 50 fingers at
0: once, it knows whose fingers they were, like what hand it was on, and which finger it was, and
1: which way it was pointed. Oh, my God. Tagged objects, detection of the orientation of touches, tilted display, rotated display, specialized controls, and so on. Surface apps that are installed and registered on a device made for Surface are automatically integrated with the Surface shell and can make use of those special features and there's a link to another video which I think is the same video but I'm not sure. Um here's basically here's the deal. Surface 20 is no longer a product. Surface isn't a product. It's a technology. And there are other that's why they say devices made for Surface. So Surface is a technology. The hardware is now uh you know, it's wh- whatever. Who Anyone can, any hardware manufacturer can make a device for Surface. I mean, that being said, there's exactly one, the Samsung. Well, there is now. But, uh, you know, when that price gets down, it's already half the price of Surface 1. Yep. It's more than half the price.
0: Well, and much smaller, too. It's just a few inches thick. It's no longer a table. It's, you know, it's, it's a countertop.
1: Well, yeah, it looks like a table, but it looks like a table, like your kitchen table. Yeah, it's, a table. it's just got
0: legs on it. You can take the legs off if you want. Right.
1: Yeah, so just very cool, and uh, it just made me want to download that API and start messing around with it on my Windows 7 machine. What would you build? I don't know. I I hate to say it, but I want to play board games on it. That's an obvious,
0: obvious one. It's a terribly expensive one, but you know, actually, the coolest thing would be to make it a coffee table, and I want it to have a relationship with my television. Oh, you know? yeah. I want to look at the guy down on the table and then pick a show and flick it onto the TV.
1: Yeah, maybe this is the the new device that we're talking about here where, you know, with Windows 8 and tablet and touch and all that, it's really doesn't make sense to have it vertical on your desktop. It's got to be at least at a, you know, 20 degree, 30 degree angle, yeah. maybe even on the table itself. So, we're going to it's all going to be interesting, but that was my idea for the first giveaway for the the technology giveaway for the Rocks fan club next year. Maybe we could raise, a, you know, a little extra money. Yeah, maybe
0: we'll get a couple of sponsors to chip in and uh, give away a Surface as a prize. I like that idea. That would
1: be so cool.
0: (laughs) (laughs) If you like that idea, you should send us a message and let us know you want a Surface. Join the fan club.
1: Yeah. And speaking of messages,
0: who's talking to us, Richard? Grabbed an email out of the stack from Andrew Wilson, who says, Hi, guys. I really enjoyed listening to show 720 from Ordev. And that was the show I called Cool Projects at Ordev. Mm-hmm. With uh, with Tess Fernandez and um, uh, Luca and uh, Hendrik Anderson. Yep. Uh, first of all, it was really great to hear from Tess again. Always interesting and great to hear what Carl is doing with Connect. Yeah. The thing that really grabbed me was the talk with Hendrik Anderson. Oh man. I designed a user interface for a rail control system here in Sydney, Australia, and I think he means rail as in railways. Right. And one of the big usability problems I have is that we use four to six screens to display control maps to the signalers. The, I, and I just love it when someone just speaks in their domain, <laughs> yeah. you know, like you, you know what we, we, that we don't necessarily know what the heck a signaler is, but it sounds cool. It sounds
1: cool. I got an idea.
0: Yeah. This makes it a tedious task to move the mouse from one end of the map to the other it makes it difficult to provide context sensitive information from the interface. I was intrigued to hear about Henrik's product and it renewed my thoughts of things I could do with our user interface. Mm. I first came across the concept when watching an iTunes U video from Stanford entitled gaze enhanced user interface design, where they spoke about using eye tracking for coarse grained movement of the mouse and fine grained positioning with the mouse. Mm-hmm. I put this in the sci-fi future basket at the time because all of this was based on research-level hardware. Knowing that these products actually exist out there may lead to some fun R&D for my team in the not-too-distant future. Thanks for a great show and for giving me entertaining and stimulating listening material for my commute to work. Mm. And um, he never actually said this outright, but it, that third interview that we had in The Cool Project was yep. Henrik Anderson's thing. We saw this in the bar the night this before, This is remember? amazing.
1: Eye-tracking the- software
0: Yes, for .NET. So, and, you know, Andrew, you're addressing a problem I got when I built my big triple because my triple is the 30-inch panel in the center with 20s on the wing, so it's 4960 by 1600, and I actually had to switch to a trackball because getting the mouse from one end of the screen to the other is too far for a mouse pad.
1: How about this? My setup in the studio, which is where I am right now, I have two 30s side by side, and above that, a 65-inch plasma And running. so,
0: Being able to look around and just get the mouse part to go where it needed to go. Yeah, That's the thing. Yeah. So interesting thinking. And
1: worthy of a mug
0: to Australia. Absolutely. So thank you, Andrew. We're going to send you down a .NET Rocks mug. And if you'd like one, you could comment on any of our shows at .NET Rocks.com or write us an email, .NET Rocks at net.
1: Well, before we start geeking out here, Richard, uh, I got to tell you about Pluralsight. Pluralsight.com provides comprehensive developer training online. They have nearly 200 hardcore developer training courses authored by MVPs, and industry experts, and they release 8 to 10 new courses every month. You can access their library free for 10 days, 200 minutes of training, all you can get. And uh, they, they have a wide variety of developer training courses, including coverage of iOS, Java, Android, web development, and pretty much anything you can think of on the Microsoft stack. So try it today. Subscription plans start at just $29 a month, pluralSite.com. And that brings us to our guest. Speaking of cool programming projects, Corey has, uh, is an inspiration in that regard. Uh, most people know Corey Haynes from his Journeyman Travels in 2009 uh, when he spent nine months programming in exchange for room and board. Since then, he's focused on raising awareness of improving development practices through code retreats, training, and speaking at conferences around the world. He lives in Chicago with his girlfriend, Sarah Gray, with whom he is also starting a consulting business, doing technical advising for non and less technical founders of startups. Welcome, Corey. Welcome back.
2: Hey, Carl and Richard. How are you guys doing? Thanks for having me.
1: Thanks for being here. We're doing great. The last time we talked, you were uh, traveling all around the world coding for food, basically, which I thought was the coolest thing. And I wish I could have been at some of those Uh, events
2: yeah it definitely was a lot of fun it you know being able to drop into places for you know a day to a week and just sort of come in no real hang-ups about oh you know i get paid this much per hour all of that just come in share with them learn from them see what they're working on Mm -hmm. code and you know it's very intense when you go in and you have a day you don't you don't muck around too much. You come right. in, you drop in, and you just start writing code with people. And it's a lot of fun to do that.
1: And I would imagine, I mean, if for me, I would learn as much as I taught. I mean, you're probably more, you know, from the people that I'm working with. And, of course, it turns out to be mutually beneficial. But um, And before we start talking about code retreats, which is a really fascinating thing that you're doing, I, I want to talk a little bit about what you're doing with kids. Mm-hmm. Because we were talking about this at Ordev a little bit, just, you know, at breakfast, I think. Tell tell me about some of the stuff you've been doing with kids.
2: So last summer, um, I I taught a a Scratch class to some high schoolers. And Scratch is? Scratch is a graphical programming language. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like if you remember back in the late 90s, programming IVRs were all sort of block-based and... Um so you would basically drag blocks that were call or a call flow, or you would drag loops and drag if statements. Um mm-hmm. it's a lot like the uh um god, the programming language for the Lego Mindstorm. Okay. And you just sort of, you know, loops are they look like vices and then you drag other blocks and control structures inside mm-hmm. of there. Mm-hmm. And it's all sprite based. So you're basically just working, moving sprites around. It has built-in collision detection, things like that. It's built in uh, Squeak. Squeak? uh, Squeak, which is a small talk
1: uh, dialect.
2: All right. And so it's basically you just pull down an image and start working with it. And it's really great because um, there's not really syntax you have to learn mm-hmm. you the kids don't run into that problem where their program doesn't work because they forgot a semicolon right <laughs> which is frustrating at best yeah and um so that kind of and i before that i'd been doing in the um in the ruby community there's uh, quite a few um programs that have been started over the last few years specifically targeting kids so there's like a kids ruby Program that they go around and do, um, which is a, a couple-hour session teaching kids just the very basics um, of Ruby. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a, a program called Hackity Hack that, uh, why the lucky stiff started. Steve Klavnik has since taken over, um, and there's a lot of really education movements coming up, and so I've talked to them and um, you know worked. Mostly they do a lot. They're, they're all of the heavy movers. And um, I'm looking to do a little bit of behind-the-scenes uh, work with them from organizational stuff.
1: Yeah. Well, that's good. And and one of the things that you were telling me that you did with uh, kids was using the Connect.
2: Yeah. So Stephen Howell in uh, the U.K., had put together, this was pre-Connect SDK, um, he had put together a system to allow the Connect to be the input device for Scratch. So you could build a Scratch program where it reacted to your the joint data coming in off the Connect. So um, some of the teams in my class uh, last summer built a dancing game, um, built a sort of a bouncing ball game where their hands were the actual controllers. Um, And so it was really great to be able to take them. I mean, the the class itself I think was about six weeks, eight Mm. weeks, something like that. And by the end of the class, it was effectively one day a week of real programming. Um, And by the end of it, they were building, yeah, games where that they actually, their bodies were the, controllers for it was fantastic and really inspiring
1: now what a way to get kids really into the idea of programming i mean because if you think about it it's all about it's what got me into it was control and instant gratification you know Mm -hmm. i mean it was that whole idea about i i do some weird stuff that nobody understands and then i press a button and magic happens yeah and and even when it was text even when it was a mad libs program in my bedroom when I was ten, it was still magic, yeah, you know? and that I think it, kids are less impressed these days with something that you can do in your first you know day of programming,
0: well I think they're also living in a much more magical world, oh my
1: God, yeah,
2: yeah, like the very first class we did at the end of an hour and a half, um we had a working pong game, <laughs> which is you know, oh, it's pong <laughs> That's great, but these kids hadn't programmed before, and in an hour and a half, they had built something that was playable. It was a two-player Pong game.
1: Yeah, it's pretty
2: compelling. Yeah.
1: Well, I got to tell you something that really um, inspired my nine-year-old uh, daughter. You, you know the old text adventure, interactive fiction games, the sure. infocom games, Zork, mm-hmm. and all that? Well, yep. I decided to, because I didn't really have anything better to do one day, to write an engine for building a, a game. So, um, it quickly grew out of control, of course. No, it's not out of control. It's just, <laughs> you know, constant tweaking and refactoring and moving around and stuff. And, and to test it all out, I built a game that's based on my house. Ah. And so, you know, I have my driveway and my garage and my yard and the key and you, the door is locked and you got to go in the bushes to find the key. And then, you know, you have to, and when you try to open the door, when it's locked, it says something flip like, I'm sorry, but you can't walk through doors. You know, just to make you feel stupid, you know, that kind of stuff. And then going up the stairs and looking around, of course she wanted to, she was hooked right away and she wanted to go up into her bedroom and look around and stuff and find the things. So yeah, I'm maybe- just at the point now where I'm, I'm, she's getting interested in being able to add things and then add actions that you can do to those things and then add consequences of actions and diff- things in different states and uh, as triggers. You know, so, and it's all programmable, of course, and it's all declarative.
2: Yeah. Well, that's the way I started programming. The thing that really turned me on as a kid was playing the games, not being able to get past certain parts Mm -hmm. and then just hitting break. And of course you could, it told you what line number you broke on (laughs) and you could list around there, read, see what you were supposed to be doing and then type resume. I think it was resume or continue. Resume. uh, Was it resume? Yeah. And it would start up again. And you could actually say, resume, you know, line 200, and it would start there. Right. So you could just jump past the parts
0: that you couldn't (laughs) get past. You were cheating. That's
2: great. Absolutely. And And it's just a wonderful way to learn to program, I think, is by that things that you are interacting with so you're not oh i'm going to write a program that calculates the circumference of a circle yeah. it's no i'm writing a pong game or i'm writing you know we wrote a side scroller that was based on um uh what's it called robot unicorn attack and <laughs> oh, so i know <laughs> so we taught them how to do background scrolling and uh the idea of gravity jump yeah where it slows down as it goes <laughs> up and 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 it was just a really great thing because they could tweak it so easily. Yeah. And there was no, um, there's just no frustration around it. There's frustration with trying to get the algorithm correct or the messaging between the sprites correct, but no frustration or very little frustration around the things that weren't important, like variable names or syntax. Semicolons. Yeah, semicolons and, (laughs) um... So it's just fascinating. It was really inspiring to watch these kids um pick it up and become interested in it and not, you know, not all of them were suddenly wanting to be programmers. Right. But they all had a better view of what the idea of programming was right. and that really leads into that idea that as our as computers become and have become so prevalent in society and in the world around us It's a basic understanding of scripting or what it means to program a computer is, if it's not already there, it's very soon going to become part of basic literacy.
1: I also think that there's a whole contingent of kids and adults alike, probably more adults, but that are afraid of technology because it is magical mm -hmm. and they don't understand it and they don't think they will ever be able to understand it. And therefore... You know, the idea of having a connect connected to the internet is horrifying for some people because, you know, that means people are going to spy on me or whatever. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So, you know, not that that couldn't happen, but I mean, it's the same people who are afraid of flying, which is the safest form of travel in the world because Mm -hmm. you hear about the accidents, but uh, you don't hear about the millions of planes that safely land and take off every day. Yeah. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by Telerik JustCode. If you're like me, you're probably using some productivity add-on in Visual Studio to check, refactor, and test your code. But how would you like to get a complete list of your solution's errors on the fly as you type, and not just for the opened files? The new kid on the block, JustCode, does just that for all supported .NET languages as well as JavaScript. It's like having a compiler running all the time, only that just code is faster and requires less CPU time. One area where just Code is definitely better is performance. The tool provides the fastest code analysis and better performance without slowing down Visual Studio. Another reason to try it is JavaScript support. It'll help you read, navigate, and refactor your JavaScript code better than you've ever imagined. Learn more about the features JustCode offers and download a trial at com slash JustCode. And don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. Well, let's talk about code retreats. Excellent. Tell me what you're doing here. What is this global day of code retreat all about and how is it different from any other kind of get-together?
2: So, code retreats the thing that's you know i and a bunch of people around the world have been doing for the almost last 3 years kind of really fine tuning it and it's primarily a community based uh day of practice the the fundamental idea is that developers don't really take a, a lot of opportunity to practice the fundamentals of development because we're always trying to get things done yes. whether it's deadlines at work or the open source projects we're working on, or just our small little tasks, we always have this overhead of, I want to finish. And because of that, we naturally, and rightfully so, cut corners in our coding and in our designs. And so what Code Retreat originally started out as, and over the last three years has been fine-tuning the format to really capture this goal, is to provide a day where you can't actually finish. So you free your mind up and you start working on practicing how to write really great code and really great, uh, better designs that are more malleable. And so these happen all over. Um, a lot of people facilitate them. I've been facilitating them for um, almost three years. I'm I think I have between 30 and 40 events that I've, or trainings that I've facilitated. There's a lot of people around the world. Europe goes crazy for them. They have them all the time. Mm. And so there's, there's 2011 you've been seeing like ones where there'll be two on the same day, maybe one in the States and one over in Europe. And last, last probably fall or winter. Um, I was thinking, man, what if you took a day and had a bunch of them all over the place and they Skype together. Mm. And so it was the same code retreat has a very specific format. It has a very specific problem that we work on and very specific learning goals. And so I thought, man, it would be um, really cool to get a bunch of cities together, do them all on the same day and Skype and have this sort of sharing um, the sharing community type of thing around the world. And, you know, a lot of the people who spend time with me uh, say that they they get used to me going, um, starting off sentences with things like, I wonder what would happen if,
1: mm. or wouldn't <laughs> it
2: be neat if? Yeah, wouldn't it be and, cool? And then yeah, like a day so, later,
1: you know, here's the first yeah, one.
2: <laughs> yeah, and, and so I had talked about this idea of, having a global day where there's a, a few cities around the world and about maybe four months ago, three months, four months ago, I finally put out a blog post and I said, man, wouldn't it be cool if we had about 20 cities around the world all doing this on the same day and Skyping so that when one one event ended, they could Skype with another event that was beginning And so kind of past the baton style, Mm -hmm. um, and put out, you know, a a little survey form to get people's interest, started getting people contacting me. Um, more people started being interested. A guy, um, a guy I know who's been facilitating some of them named Jim Hearn in Pittsburgh. He started picking up, um, some sort of co-organizing tasks with me and, by the if i just basically said december 3rd all across the world let's try to get 20 of these cities together and we hit 20 like august you know the end of august and then we hit 30 cities planned and then 40 cities planned and then oh, 50 wait. cities planned and all through the fall september october and november we're starting to we we just kept hitting new milestones so it's like man it would be great if we could get 60 and then a week later we have 60 cities mm. all registered um and on we had a mailing list for the hosts um we st- started talking to a couple companies to do some sponsorships and my my plan was to fly to sydney australia and facilitate the very first code retreat and sort of kick off the day. And mm-hmm. yay, everybody. And then somehow figure out how to get to Honolulu, Hawaii and facilitate the last event of the day. Hmm. Right. Using the dateline in your favor. Right. Yes. Yes. Much like Superman when he saved Lois Lane. <laughs> um, <laughs> and. It very, very similar. And so I called up, um, Delta, which is the airline I fly and asked and said, here's my plan. I need to get from Sydney, Australia to Honolulu, Hawaii. I need to leave in the evening and arrive in the morning of the same day. And it turned out not on Delta, but there was another airline that had one flight that left Sydney at 6 PM. That landed on Hon- in Honolulu at six forty five a.m. the same day on December third. <laughs> nice. So <laughs> you arrived
0: twelve hours before you left. <laughs> yes, exactly.
2: The flight <laughs> was nine hours long, um, and so I bought the ticket, and that's there's that. And then through October and November, more cities and more people all around the world started hearing about it a little bit. It was all word of mouth, Twitter, all mm-hmm. of that. Um, and by The week of December 3rd, um, we ended at about about 93 or 94 cities. Holy man. Wow. And so we had um, Sydney and Melbourne and Brisbane and Perth, and we had Tokyo and I think Beijing. Um, We had three or four in India. So before I left Sydney, I Skyped with Pune, India. Um, And then... As it moved through the time zones, we had, I don't know, I think we had 30 in in Europe. We had one in uh, Africa. We had a bunch in the States, and then we had a couple in South America. Um, And so it was just, and they were Skyping back and forth, uh, talking to, you know, it was, they're very local distributed events. But during lunchtime, they would have a quick Skype call with another city in a different time zone. Um, and then I put together a quick little application, a quick little web page that let the the individual cities update their status of where they, they're they in a session on break, at lunch, um, and what part of the day. Because the day has a very specific format. Right. So you could see it. And so the really neat thing was that I left Australia and India had just started, so there were maybe maybe six or seven cities um, active on the site changing their status. And then when I landed in Honolulu, which was the end of the day, mm. I looked on it and about I think about eighty to eighty-five of the cities had been actively updating their status through the course of the day.
0: Nice. Wow. And
2: so I landed and it was just this, wow. Yeah. Amazing. So I landed, Skyped with, um, uh, I think, uh, Pittsburgh, Skyped with San Francisco, Skyped, I think with one of the Florida ones. And I mean, Skyped with, uh, Madrid, mm-hmm. Spain, they were, they had just finished and ended up Skyping with the organizers in their car um, while I was wow. just getting ready to start Honolulu. And so, yeah, it was this great day. Um,
1: what what was the actual content that everybody was focused on?
2: Okay, so the the format is 45-minute sessions. You do five or six sessions a day, and you work on Conway's Game of Life. And at the end of the 45 minutes, you delete all of your code. And so you pair up, you work on, you know, you practice TDD, you practice better design principles, you um, really focus on the four rules of simple design and really just using Conway's Game of Life as not a problem to solve, but as a medium to practice design, uh, design considerations and design decisions I There's see. a lot of wonderful subtleties that you can investigate using um, Game of Life. Um, so.
1: so the idea was to code it. I mean, the algorithm is well known. So the idea was yep. to code it and then j- erase everything and then go back and practice using the the right tools and the right practices yeah. and the right methodologies so that at the end of the day... You still have the game of life, but you've done it the right way,
2: yeah, and you've done it um like I always hesitate to say the right way as much as a better way than you did it before, okay um, one of the things that i uh, that I like to talk about um, that we practice is that it's not really i don't really think that there's a objective thing called good design mm. I think that there's something called better design, mm. and better design are designs that are more easy to change
1: well and the key is the relativity there good means good compared to what right yeah
2: yeah so it's a design is better if when you need to change it it's easier and more cost effective to change your software and so we focus very much on that during the day um different sessions have different constraints to help people um explore different ideas around design so mm. it's not just like a hack fest of okay try to build it six times we'll have a session where um you don't get to use any language primitives yeah or um no uh no if statements right um there's always almost always a session where uh, we do some pairing exercises um, one of them is mute where you can't talk to your pair you can only communicate through your tests mm. Um, and so there's a lot of these, um, sort of facilitation guidelines of here's, here's ideas on how to use the problem domain to highlight, um, techniques that you can try and design, uh, ideas. And, uh, like, for example, one of the four rules of simple design is no duplication. And it's really about, the idea that knowledge should be encapsulated in one place, not as much code, as much as knowledge. And so in the game of life, it's the very simplest form is played on a two-dimensional infinite grid. And so you see a lot of people passing XY parameters around all their methods. And so it's a great opportunity to look at the idea that that spreads the knowledge of your topology throughout your system. And so if the topology changes, then you have to go through and make changes in a bunch of places as opposed to encapsulating the topology knowledge into something like a location object or a location class. And so nobody, none of the rest of the parts of your system know whether it's a two-dimensional or three-dimensional or bounded or unbounded they're always asking one central place for that information. And so there's there's all of these little subtle, fun pieces of the problem domain that you can use to really practice um, uh, different ideas around design.
0: So Carl. Yeah, Richard. You ever embed Excel into an application?
1: Ugh. You know, that's right up there with sticking ice picks in my ears. Nice. Because your end users have to have the right version of Office and all that stuff. Yeah. And it has that extra layer of dependency. What I want is just a way to take all that Excel goodness and plop it right into my .NET application. Well, you reminded me of Farpoint Spread from the old days. Yeah, 20 years ago, I used Farpoint Spread. But now, of course, it's Grape City Power Tools Spread. And now, you know, they have this version that's both for ASP.NET and for Windows Forms in one package. Nice. Yeah, it's two different controls, obviously, but it's in one package. So You bought one, you bought the other. Right. Spread.net from Grape City
0: Power Tools. Smarter components for smarter developers.
1: Wow, I, I, it's just blowing my mind how um, the whole idea of, of the simultaneous uh, occurrence is just amazing. And uh, what I what I'm curious is. What kinds of things were you skyping about during those sessions? And was everybody involved? Like, did you get everybody together in the room and then get a video feed with the with different cities and then talk about what they did and and like how how was that knowledge passed on? Um, the Skype calls were
2: um, all coordinated individually between cities. So like, I didn't do very much like kind of global coordination of you're going to talk to this person, you're going to talk about this. Mm-hmm. And so there was a lot of um, just sort of individuals, individual cities talking, they tended to be like during lunch, or before the day or after the day, since the sessions themselves were very local focused. Um, and, you know, you've got anywhere from 10 to 20 to 30 people at a code retreat. So um, we didn't want to disrupt the focus on the local learning and the local people and the mm. local community by saying, okay, this session, you're going to be Skyping with another city. Right. Um, so the Skype calls tended to be much more, Hey, how's it going? We're here in, you know, crack And the other city, oh, we're here, and, you know, in Reston, Virginia, awesome. The Skype calls were very much intended Mm -hmm. to be about bringing the global community together and emphasizing the fact that these were happening all over the world. Yeah. um, As opposed to, like, sharing and saying that two cities are doing it together. Um, Similar to, like, the website was really about showing that there's all of these people happening. And they weren't... The, the nice thing was that they were all happening local time. So it starts right. usually about eight thirty, nine o'clock. And so I think we ended up with like 14 time zones. And so as a time zone would hit 9 o'clock, they would be starting. I think I was about a week and a half or two weeks away from having a session in Antarctica happen.
1: Whoa. <laughs> um, I
2: was... I was tracking down the network, my network, and I think I was maybe two degrees away from somebody who was actually in Antarctica, and probably would have been able to do one, say one forty-five minute session. It wouldn't have been like a whole day type of thing, but right, that would have been neat. So next year, Antarctica will be in it. Um, my my goals for next year, because um, this was just such a success. Um, and the feedback that we got from the part- both the the participants, the organizers, the facilitators, all of that was that it definitely needs to happen next year again. So my goal for next year is two hundred cities, and Antarctica, of course. And my my stretch goal because if you know two hundred cities is just well that's just a given. Mm-hmm. So I want to stretch it a little bit, and I would love to
0: have at least a Skype call with the space station. <laughs> nice. See if we, yeah, getting 45 minutes of an astronaut's time is a little tricky, but you know, who knows? Who knows if you could get 45 minutes, but
2: maybe you could get one minute. Mm-hmm. And if you could get, I mean, that would be something, but a 45 minute, I mean, the astronauts, uh, I bet you a large majority of them can code.
0: Yeah, at least I mean, they're engineers.
2: Those. They're engineers. Um, and so that's my stretch goal. I've got to start working my network as soon as possible because <laughs> I think it's gonna be a farther a longer path to somebody on the space station through my network than it would be to get a developer in Antarctica. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um but but yeah, that's uh that's kind of what we did. It was all sort of hey, what wouldn't it be cool if and in the end it was.
0: Yeah, it sounds like it was very cool and, uh, and went well. And these are still going. It's not that you're all doing them all in one day now, right? They still no. go on routinely.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's one. Um, if you go um, to coderetreat.org, which is our community network where we're centralizing a lot of the um, information, blog posts, information about hosting, facilitating, all of that, as well as uh, uh, event announcements. Um, there's one coming up in Amsterdam. Um, I think there's one coming up in Pittsburgh early next year, within the next two months. Um, and I'm going to be doing one in Cleveland after code mash, um, which I guess is what a week away from when this airs. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're just, most of it is right now. I think people are just exhausted, <laughs> but, um, most of the people were, that organized um, and facilitated the coder trees for global day, it was their first time doing it. Right. And the feedback we got was like, okay, well, when's the next one? And so we're, we put together this uh, social network. Um, it's based, it's on, It's an, uh, based on Ning where we can really centralize information and guidance and You know, what does it mean to host it? What's the format? Um, With the format being very set and specific, it makes it, um, there's less of a barrier
0: to entry for people to do one. Nice. Yeah, just getting the process down pat so that people could just focus on actually participating in the retreat rather than running the logistics of it. So is there a
1: list of uh, cities that typically on your website where people can sign up if there isn't something already going on in your city?
2: Yeah. So um, coderetreat.org is pretty much the place. There's a list of the events coming up, and um, there's information about organizing, information about all of that. And um, really, anybody who wants to organize one might have any questions, um, can definitely feel free to email me. Or go on to the site and leave a message. Um, There's a lot of people on there that are, you know, participating and talking about it. Lots of blog posts um, are on that site from people who've done them. And um, you can go there and get a bunch of information.
1: Okay. Wow, great, Corey. Always a pleasure to talk to you. and I love what you're doing with kids and the Connect and Scratch and all that stuff. And, And the Code Retreat thing just blowing my mind.
2: Ah, well, thanks a lot. Can I make one little thing about the co- community fund?
1: Go right ahead.
2: So part of the, um, one of the things that we announced at, uh, globally of Code Retreat is the formation of a nonprofit called the Code Retreat Community Contribution Fund. We're actually in the process of going for 501c3 status. Nice. And it has two primary goals, um, the first goal is to help fund uh, adult education programs such as Code Retreats, um, community-oriented, free uh, adult and both adult education and developer practice events. And the other goal, which is um, a little bit larger, is become a central place for um, coordinating, supporting, um, just all around helping out the, all of the disparate, um, and disjointed kids programming activities. So you have, you know, you have people in the UK, you have people in, um, San Francisco, you have people in Pittsburgh, you have kids Ruby and Hackety Hack and, um, Jason Gorman's teacher exchange program. And, um, there's no central place where a large company could give a substantial amount towards the goal of teaching kids to program. And so what we're looking to be is a, you know, if we get our, when we get our 501c3 status, a, you know, tax deductible organization that will dole out money to these individual programs, helping them grow and spread. So, you know, you might have a, a, a company like, Microsoft or ThoughtWorks that would love to give $50,000, say, to um, help teach kids to program, but finding the individual small one and giving them that much money is often difficult to do. And so we're going to be that and help dole it out. We're also working with um, some partners in academia to uh, work on acquiring government grants as well. And so we're going to be talking to companies about doing matching donations. So we, there's a grant coming up that we're going to be applying for that I think is around $250,000. And so we're going to be talking to companies saying, Hey, if you would contribute, if you would uh, say you'll match 20,000, then we are much more likely to get the government grant if we actually have industry matching funds. So we're, that's sort of the big long-term thing um, that uh, uh, that a, a few of us are doing, coming out of you know building up the the momentum around Code Retreat.
1: Well, that's great, Corey. Keep doing what you do. You're an inspiration to us all.
2: Oh, well, I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on again. It was uh, good to run into you guys uh, over in what was that in Sweden?
1: Yeah. It's hard to keep track of them, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> All right. Thanks Thanks again. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. Hey, thanks for listening. And remember, PluralSight.com is where you can get 200 minutes of free video training by guests on .NET Rocks and other experts in the field. PluralSight.com.